If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Steve Pride. Tonight, and I'm setting in for Abby Dees, by the way, who is, where is Abby now? She's in London, in Islington, in fact, in a lovely little apartment without us. And then she'll be right back, right? She'll be back eventually. Well, she goes to Turkey and, okay. Yes. Uh, tonight, Abby Dees talks to the filmmaker and star of Margarita Without a Straw, or With a Straw, that sounds tasty, <laughs> an indie Indian drama about a bisexual teenager with cerebral palsy. Heather Kitching of Queer FM in Vancouver, British Columbia, examines Canada's queer decade, 1995 to 2005. And I get deep and probing with gay adult film superstar, Colby Keller. And I am so looking forward to that. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Jessica Andrea. And I'm Wenzel Jones. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending September 3rd, 2016. Bermuda's Supreme Court has agreed to hear a civil marriage equality lawsuit. In an August 31st report, the Island Nation's Royal Gazette newspaper quoted attorney Mark Pettengill, who represents Winston Godwin and Greg DeRoche, that he and his clients look forward to the full hearing of this important human rights issue. The country's former attorney general is representing the couple pro bono. The case grew out of the refusal of the registrar general to process the couple's marriage application. The lawsuit argues that the denial violates provisions of Bermuda's Human Rights Act. In his refusal letter, the registrar cited Section 15 of the Matrimonial Causes Act, which stipulates that a marriage is void if the parties are not male and female. A date for the high court hearing has yet to be announced. The highest court in the U.S., state of New York, has expanded the definition of parenthood by deciding that separated same-gender couples each have the right to seek visitation and custody of their children, even if they aren't the biological or adoptive parent. The state's Court of Appeals ruled on August 30th that the existing standard requiring a biological or adoptive connection had become unworkable in light of society's increasingly varied familial relationships. The decision settled two separate cases involving estranged lesbian couples in which the birth mother had custody but refused to allow the non-biological parent visitation rights. The ruling only impacts cases where the non-biological or adoptive parent was part of the decision to raise a child. The court noted that rulings in future cases would also continue to be based on 
what is determined to be in the best interest of the child. The BuzzFeed News site updated two other U.S. LGBT rights related cases this week. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has already led two separate lawsuits filed by several states against the Obama administration's guidelines on equal treatment for transgender people on school campuses and in health care. He and ten other state attorneys general and two governors weighed in this week on the ongoing battle over the anti-trans provision of North Carolina's notorious HB2. In addition to forbidding local governments from passing LGBT anti-discrimination ordinances, the law requires trans people to use public restrooms that correspond to the gender on their birth certificates rather than their gender identity. Paxton and company this week asked U.S. District Court Judge Thomas Schroeder to put the Justice Department's lawsuits specifically challenging the trans part of HB2 on hold until lawsuits opposing other parts of the law proceed. Schroeder issued an injunction last week ordering the University of North Carolina not to enforce the so-called bathroom provisions of HB2, but it only applies to the students and employees of the state's university system who have filed a separate lawsuit against the anti-trans part of HB2. The legal papers filed this week by Texas and the others ask the judge to delay any further actions until an appeals court can rule on a challenge to last week's injunction involving the University of North Carolina student and employee plaintiffs. The filing also cites the case of a transgender student who successfully challenged a Gloucester County, Virginia school board policy requiring him to use separate restroom and locker facilities. The school board officially asked the U.S. Supreme Court this week to hear their challenge to an appeals court ruling upholding Gavin Grimm's right to use the boys' bathroom. That appeals court ruling is already on hold, which will force Grimm to continue to use separate facilities as the new school year begins. In other news, the Church of England has its first openly gay bishop. Nicholas Chamberlain, the Bishop of Grantham, went public before a newspaper that had threatened to out him could publish a story about his sexuality. He told the Guardian newspaper this week that it was not my decision to make a big thing about coming out, but it's not the first thing I'd say to anyone. Sexuality is part of who I am, he said, but it's my ministry that I want to focus on. Chamberlain was consecrated last year, and his sexuality is not a secret. The church's titular leader, Archbishop of Canterbury Justin Welby, said that he's been fully aware of Bishop Nick's long-term committed relationship. His appointment was made on the basis of his skills and calling to serve the church in the Diocese of Lincoln. He lives within the bishop's guidelines, which require him to be celibate, and his sexuality is completely irrelevant to his office. Bishop Chamberlain himself describes his relationship in terms most anyone can understand, telling the Guardian that, It is faithful, loving, we are like-minded, we enjoy each other's company, and we share each other's life. The news is, however, expected to get a chilly reception from Anglican congregations in the Southern Hemisphere. Traditionalists there have long threatened to leave the Church of England over what they perceive to be creeping pro-gay acceptance in the denomination. Cure-peddling U.S. evangelicals have inflamed anti-gay sentiment among Anglicans in Asia, Latin America, and parts of Africa, particularly Uganda. Spanish LGBT advocacy group Acropoli has lodged a complaint with Madrid's regional government against a cure-peddling therapist who claimed in a 2014 interview that heterosexuality is already in each individual. You just have to find it inside. Change therapy is the means to discovering it. The website of psychotherapist Elena Lorenzo Rego claims that everyone is born heterosexual. Her pitch includes testimony from patients she claims to have cured. One man says that he'd had sex with more than 200 men, but that after treatment, he was happily married with a daughter. 
Acropoli filed the complaint against Rego under Madrid's new anti-homophobia laws that came into effect in August. The group said in a statement this week that therapies that claim to heal homosexuality are false and unscientific and only serve to play with the insecurities of people that suffer not because of their homosexuality, but because of the homophobia that exists in society. And finally, queer pride has reached the hometown of infamous Moorhead, Kentucky, County Clerk Kim Davis. Two months after the U.S. Supreme Court's June 2015 civil marriage equality ruling, Davis attracted global attention for refusing to issue marriage licenses to lesbian and gay couples because of her religious beliefs. She became an instant celebrity in evangelical circles. Davis was eventually ordered to allow employees in the county clerk's office to issue licenses to same-gender couples, albeit without her official signature. David Moore organized Moorhead Pride, the first ever such event in eastern Kentucky. He told the Vice website that the Kim Davis controversy helped push the town's residents to decide where they stood on the issue of gay rights. Moorhead's tourism board was among the Pride event sponsors. About 50 vendors, including nonprofits, had booths at the festival. While the real Kim Davis was nowhere to be seen, a dead-on lookalike emceed speeches by Kentucky's successful marriage equality plaintiffs, a reading by 16-year-old budding transgender poet Dylan Scott, and performances by local drag artistes. Moore told Vice that it was probably the first time people had seen a drag show in their life. That's News Wrap for the week ending September 3rd, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Jessica Andrea. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And before we go on, though, we have to mention a bit of news that Phyllis Shafley, a champion of LGBT rights, feminism, (laughs) and the woman's right to choose, passed away today at the age of 92. Oh, Mrs. Shafley. Shafley. Who has a gay son, so she's got that one thing going for her. I know. It's the definition of too soon to comment beyond that, I think. I know. All right. Margarita with a Straw is an open, frank, funny, romantic dramedy about a young Indian woman living with cerebral palsy. Abby Dees reports. Coming soon to a good art house theater near you, or maybe your DVD player, is the award-winning feature film Margarita with a Straw, about a young woman's coming of age and sexual discovery. I'm fortunate to be here with the film's writer and director, Shonali Bose, and its star, Kalki Kekla. Correct. Yay, I got it. my name right. (laughs) Shonali, people know you best for pretty unflinching work about social justice and political struggle. In this country, I think in particular, the feature film Amu that dealt with the story of a U.S.-raised Indian woman returning to India to discover her family's role in the 1984 massacre of thousands of Sikhs in Delhi after the assassination of Indira Gandhi. I was surprised when I saw this film because it seemed at first glance to be the opposite. It was a gentle coming-of-age story. Was that something that you wanted to do after that kind of experience or how did this film come to life? It's very deeply personal in that sense you're right although if you I don't know if you've seen Amu like Amu is also on a hardcore political issue but it's completely buried in the film like it's a narrative drama that 
is not really like overtly political. Uh, so in this also, I feel there are issues of disability and sexuality, given that it's illegal to be gay in our country that are so important and very as up there as genocide, I think. But again, it's about the narrative. Going beyond that, it was a very personal narrative for me because I grew up with a first cousin who's like my sister, just a year younger than me, who was born with cerebral palsy. And we were having this conversation. I was 40, she was 39. We were in a pub in London. She always outdrinks me. And I said, Malini, what do you want for your 40th birthday? It's the best birthday ever. And she said, I just want to have sex. <laughs> and that was the inspiration, that thought that... Um, Actually, when we were teenagers, I was very conscious that she was so romantic and was dying to have a date. And I thought about it a lot. And then I guess I, I didn't think about it anymore because I couldn't. I didn't know what to do about it. And I put it away because she was successful. She was studying in London. She wrote a novel. So I put that thought away saying it's OK, but it's not OK. It's not OK at all. It's a deep yearning that she has. And I'm sure many, many disabled people do. So that was the inspiration to write a story. And I thought it would be nice to do it as the coming of age of a teenager so that it feels universal, so that you cease to think of it as a disabled person's yearning, but as any teenager coming of age and falling in love and going through the ups and downs. How do you describe the film for people who haven't seen it yet? It's a coming of age love story, um, yeah. which is uh, upbeat. And um, in India, our marketing, we were very conscious because we had a huge release in India and we always were like, this is like a Bollywood film. <laughs> that was we, we were like, it's a happy love story, Bollywood film, you know. Yeah, it's a rom-com. With a yeah, she used twist. to say it's a rom-com. <laughs> but it's got some really wonderful, bittersweet elements to it. Mm. I mean, it's not just a prance. No, I course. really, really <laughs> feel for the lead character, Lila. And you play Lila. Did you consult with your cousin when you were making the film, or was this sort of a surprise? She read every single draft of the script, which I wrote 20 drafts or 30 drafts, I think. So she was involved right from the beginning. And Kalki will tell you more about this, but I introduced them very soon after I cast Kalki. I did that because I wanted her to experience and imbibe Malni's joie de vivre and understand how Malni so in her own skin what she goes through. And that relationship, I think, was something very special for her. What was it like, Kaki, to meet her? Well, the first meeting was actually uh, awful because <laughs> uh, Malni was feeling like a science experiment, I think. Because mm. the first time we met, it was like asking her 100 questions about cerebral palsy and about her life and how she walks and how she talks and everything. And I think it was really tough the first time. And I was like, she was feeling very conscious. She howled and howled. My father told me, who's her uncle, she howled and howled after that. And I felt just appalled. I've always grown up with her not thinking of her disability because that's how we've been brought up. And so just was insensitive and in just asking certain technical specific questions. And Which I think if, if I wasn't there would have been fine. But right. because it was a new person observing yeah. her, I think she got really conscious. So anyway, that first meeting was really tough. But after that, we kind of became friends on our own terms rather than through Shonali. I started hanging out with her, got drunk with her as Maldi loves to drink. Uh, Does she like margaritas? She, she, what She's she more a whiskey, drink whiskey drinker. Oh, okay, yeah, she, well. like I'm, um, I did margarita because I'm just a sweet, fluffy cocktail type of person, and she's like hardcore drinker. Yeah, yeah. and she, but she has a straw with it, you know. Uh, so I remember whiskey drinking with, with straw. Her whiskey with a straw, and uh, basically, like we hung out in her workplace. We hung out where she works in a center for disability. We hung out at home with her and out in public, and so I got to see her in, in these very, very different situations and how different things affect a person, especially in India with disability. We're so not used to seeing our disabled outside. 
there's still so, so much just from a basic infrastructural level that people don't go out much who are disabled. So when I went out to the theater with her, for example, like, you know, a lot of people just staring and also not being educated on what she had. So, you know, treating her, infantilizing her like, like she's a child, uh, whereas, you know, she's been to Oxford, she's written a book. And she's she's a pretty badass. Yeah. I read a little bit about her. So all of that, I really got to see close up. And she's also somebody who's got a great sense of humor. And I think that was really important in finding for Lila as well, that, you know, that she doesn't feel sorry for herself, that she does mess up and she's a normal person like I think the problem with a lot of films on disability especially in India is that we tend to glorify the person make them very angelic and sweet whereas Lila is just another horny teenager with issues and problems and makes mistakes you know so that was really really refreshing I was really conscious of that I mean there's a term for it it's called inspiration porn and I I really was (laughs) because the whole thing is that the disabled have to be inspiring and for me, creating a grey character was very important because then it's a three-dimensional person who you identify with. So Lila is in no way perfect. This is Abby Dees, and I'm talking with Shanali Bose, the writer and director of the independent film Margarita with a Straw, as well as the film star Kalki Kekla. Margarita with a Straw is available now on DVD and streaming on Netflix and Amazon Video. The film is very much focused on her sexual awakening. And... I was quite aware that when I first saw in the film her sexuality coming onto screen, and it was not overt, it was not graphic or anything, it was very, very tastefully done and honest, I felt uncomfortable. And I was really bothered by the fact that I was uncomfortable because I have stood up in public spaces and said, every woman has a right to claim and enjoy her sexuality. And by the end of the film, I'm happy to report that that discomfort had gone away. It kind of reminded me when I first started seeing same-sex sexual imagery in film. That same discomfort, it seemed so intimate because I wasn't used to seeing it. And I think that was just it. Were you aware that that would be a response that people would have? I don't think I'm alone. Well, leave alone the response, Abby. Like, I think you might be referring to the scene. It's the very first time we see her being sexual. She's actually masturbating. That is something we never see in cinema. Leave alone a disabled person in a, a wheelchair a masturbating. A woman masturbating. Yeah. And it was so tastefully done, as you said, because we were just on her back. For me, writing it and directing it, I felt uncomfortable because it's an intimate space. I myself had an inhibition. I was felt inhibited to put it on screen. And I had to struggle with it that should I keep it, should I not, then thinking of my audience because I myself was feeling that. But this is so important. It's sacred and important and we've done it beautifully and therefore I must keep it. And it's true. Yes. So we've talked about the sexuality, but there's so many things in this film that we're not used to seeing. We're not used to seeing women's sexuality. We're still not in that sort of honest, personal way, in a non-objectified way. We're not used to seeing the sexuality of the disabled. We're also not used to seeing images of bisexuality. And I know that in this country, they still cause comment. I'm wondering how these things were perceived in India. I want to just talk about why I wrote it, though, before I get to the perception in India. Because the first 10 drafts of the script for the whole first year didn't have Lila being bisexual. Or in those first 10 drafts, Lila didn't even have sex with the man. It was just the masturbation, kissing, but not sex, because he had to take her to the bathroom. And when he did that, when they came back to making out, he couldn't. And that was a comment was told to me at the Sundance Lab that why do you feel your character doesn't have sex? She never has sex in the film. 
And I was like, because my sister has never had the opportunity to have sex and she's always been rejected because of her body and I was being true to her story. And then they said, but you know, there are others who have and so you need to think about that. And also that he takes her to the bathroom and he gets turned off and I'll never forget, she said, honey, that is such a sexy thing. He's taking her panties <laughs> off. Yeah, it's sexy. Why will he get turned off? I was like, oh my God, I have to really stretch my brain that, that he so so. And I was like, yes, I was restricting myself to Malini and I wasn't putting myself in the script or other things in the script. So for me as a writer, I always feel the most honest you can be is when you, you put yourself in all the characters, even the antagonists, even men, others who you are not, because you will then embody them with things that can come out from your own life. So I then started writing like that. But I, I was not conscious. I just had made that decision and I started writing in a deep way. And Laila and Khanum, Khanum is a person who's blind in the film and is out and out gay person from Pakistan, actually, came out to her parents when she was 14 in the script. She lives in New York and she's very comfortable with her sexuality and her disability. She's the inspirational character, I feel like the empowered person. Uh, and Lila is still uncomfortable with both her sexuality and disability. So Kanum hits on Lila. And at this point, I'm writing the scene and Lila speaks to me as I'm writing as a writer. And Lila is like, are you kidding me? This is the gorgeous, amazing person. Why won't I have sex with her? And and I was like, oh, this is what you yearn for as a writer, that your characters speak to you. Lila is speaking to me. The, I've reached that nirvana where my character is speaking to me. And I wrote that. And then much later, of course, I understood. So when I myself was exactly the same age as Lila, I was 19. And my very first sexual experience was with a woman. In fact, she was at UC Berkeley and had come to India, Christian, and was so uncomfortable with it. Was from Berkeley campus, fully aware of sexuality and gay rights. I grew up in a very sort of sheltered, puritanical, innocent environment. I wasn't even aware of these things. I was 19, I'd never had sex with anybody, and we fell in love, and it was so natural for me to be in a relationship with her and, and our lovemaking and everything. She was ashamed of it because she was it was against her Christianity. And she came back to America. She got married to a man, and I'm proud to say now she ended her marriage. She's with a woman, with her partner, and they have two children, and she's right out there in the gay rights movement. And I was like, don't forget an Indian, hints an Indian took you on that path. But it was my own. And after that, I remained an active bisexual. Like I was married to a man, but I've also had other women. And so, so I feel like for me, so when I came to the United States, then I came soon after. And at that time, at least in the South Asian gay rights movement, which I immediately was part of, it was very uncomfortable when you're saying you're bisexual because it was like, well, that's really convenient. You're sitting on the fence. And, and I'm with my heart and soul, not because of me, like just to support the gay rights movement. Like I was just like... Even if I'm straight, I'll say I'm gay because I just I always felt left out that, well, I'm not really gay, but I couldn't pretend that I was just like, well, I am bisexual. And that made me make that choice to make Lila bisexual versus just I mean, could have made them both just gay. But I made one character gay and, and Lila because I feel now we've moved on. It's now the B is there in the LGBTQ. So the B has been added there. You described almost a little bit of a, well, why not? Lila doesn't have a problem. Lila's not confused. She's like, oh. That's what I am. I'm yeah. I like sex. <laughs> I like the person I'm with. Yeah, and that's it. There's something lovely about being able to just create that in a film, even if we're not always there in real life. You know, just now I just came off of a festival in New York called Real Abilities, and this is the first time this happened to me, but it was shocking where somebody from the audience just was angry and said, she's actually not bisexual. She's just dying to have sex, and she couldn't have it and so she had sex with a woman and she should not call herself bisexual and and I was blown away I was like wow 
you can interpret it how you want, but I feel you're being judgmental. She feels she's bisexual. And if a person is saying what they are, it's their sexuality. This is Abby Dees, and we've been talking about the new feature film, Margarita with a Straw, with writer and director Shonali Bose, and the film star, Kelki Kekla. <laughs> Margarita with a Straw can be found streaming on Netflix, YouTube, iTunes, Amazon Video, Vudu, Google Play, and probably a lot more places. And I am so glad Abby did that interview because I that was complicated. There's a lot it going was. on in that movie, and, so, and I'm not sure I could have kept track. It's such a beautiful film. The actress who mm. plays the lead is uh-huh. not handicapped, but she right. she nailed it. Oh, good. Well, now, and now I'm wondering about the cousin. Did the cousin get to have sex for her 40th birthday? I don't know. I maybe, don't know. Maybe either. we'll ask Abby to, to talk about it next time. When she gets back from, you know, the other side of the world. So, still to come, queer Canadian history. Learn it now, as we may have to move there after the election. And my conversation with artist and adult film superstar, Colby Keller. Yum. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Briggs Amendment, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. There is perhaps no figure more reviled in the gay community than former California governor and U.S. President Ronald Reagan. But in 1978, it was Reagan's principled stand that prevented passage of a powerful piece of anti-gay legislation. Named for State Assemblyman John Briggs, the so-called Briggs Amendment, more properly known as Proposition 6, would have allowed for the firing of any California public school teacher found to be advocating, imposing, encouraging, or promoting homosexuality. The bill even allowed for straight teachers to be fired for violating these tenets. At one time, support for the amendment ran as high as 75%, but after Governor Reagan opposed the bill, public support declined and the referendum was defeated by over a million votes, failing even in John Briggs' home district. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Steve Bush. Hello, my name is Colby Keller. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine every Monday night from 7 to 8 p.m. on KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, or streaming online at kpfk.org. It's quarter two. Oh, I must get a little hand put on that watch. 
Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Steve Pride. And I'm Wenzel Jones. One of our favorite LGBT radio shows broadcast from Vancouver, British Columbia. It's called Queer FM, and its creator and host, Heather Kitching, has produced a wonderful series called Canada's Queer Decade, 1995 to 2005. The first part deals with a court case that established queers do indeed, in Canada at least, have human rights. If you live in Vancouver, you probably know what the Davy Village looks like. It's got rainbow crosswalks at Davy and Butte, and a big colorful mural on the wall of Community. The bus shelters and garbage cans are pink, and there are purple Davy Village banners on the lampposts. They're symbols of a time when this was a gay mecca, when the West End was an affordable middle-class neighborhood, and queers flocked here from all over Canada to find each other. One of the high-rises was affectionately known as Vaseline Towers. I moved here in 1990 when I was 17. In 1993, I started a radio show called Queer FM on CITR. I had no idea at the time, but I was about to document one of the most phenomenal decades in the struggle for queer equality, 1995 to 2005. It was the decade we went from no constitutional human rights to full legal marriage. January 1st, 1995, there were no rainbow crosswalks and no purple banners on Davy Street. The gayest looking thing in the West End was an outrageous cafe called Doll and Pennies. It had a full-size red sports car and life-size department store mannequins on top of its marquee. The sign in the window said, Sorry, we're open. Community was just a dirty white building called the Gay and Lesbian Center. The floor was a patchwork of filthy, mismatched carpets. The real center of the community was Little Sister's Bookstore. It was still in its old location on Thurlow Street, on the top floor of an old converted house. The stairwell had a landing halfway up that was like the gay Craigslist of the 1990s. It was wallpapered with event posters and handwritten notices offering rooms to rent or furniture for sale. When I first started going there, I keep my eyes open for suspicious packages while I was walking up those stairs. The store had been bombed three times. Most people didn't know it then, but at the start of 1995, we were heading towards a court decision that was about to change our lives. My name is Barbara Finlay. I am a fat, white, old, cisgender, lesbian lawyer who grew up working class and was raised Christian on the prairies. I live with disabilities. I've done a lot of work for lesbians, gay men, bisexual, and transgender people. And I taught in the faculty of law at UBC. You can work that in somewhere. By the time 1995 rolled around, British Columbia had added sexual orientation as a protected ground under the human rights code. Canada had not yet done that. However, the big news in the previous decade was that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms had come into effect with its equality section in 1985. 
That law provides that everyone has the right to be free from discrimination, and in particular, discrimination based on race, sex, ancestry, place of origin, religious belief, or physical or mental disability. You'll notice that missing from that list was sexual orientation. The court decided early on that those words, quote, and in particular, unquote, meant that the list of protected grounds in the Charter was not a closed list. It was an open list, and if you could demonstrate that you were a member of a group historically marginalized, that you would be entitled to Charter protection. So, that was the situation uh, in 1995 when we all held our collective breaths to see what the Supreme Court of Canada was going to do in the case of Egan and Nesbitt versus Canada. Egan and Nesbitt were two senior citizens. One of them retired. When the second one retired, he applied for a spousal benefit available under a federal program to the spouses of people whose income was below a particular level. They were refused because in the eyes of the law, they weren't spouses. The argument was this. As gay men, Egan and Nesbitt were part of a group of people in Canadian society who had been historically marginalized and discriminated against and were therefore entitled to the protection of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. There were two reasons we held our breath. Most commentators expected that sexual orientation would be added to the list of prohibited grounds. But lots of commentators were not sure whether that would be extended to our partners. If I'm protected on the ground basis of sexual orientation, then you can't refuse to hire me in the military because I'm a lesbian, for example. But separately, when you hire me in the military, do you have to give spousal benefits to my partner? It's actually hard to capture for somebody who lives in a world in which equality for queers is a taken-for-granted feature of our existence, how much doubt there was that we would ever actually succeed in asserting that we deserved to be treated as human beings. I, I was terrified. My friends who are not... This is me on Queer FM, two days after the decision came down in May of 1995. I'm talking to Lawrence Aronovich of the gay lobby group, A Gal. Well, it is a confusing judgment. It was basically um, a 414 decision amongst the nine justices. All nine judges agreed that sexual orientation must be read into the Charter of Rights as a ground of discrimination analogous to the existing grounds, for example, race, sex, religion, and so forth. But above and beyond that, five of the nine judges, which is a slim majority, but nevertheless a majority, agreed that the refusal to recognize same-sex relationships in this case constitutes discrimination. Mm -hmm. So a majority ruled that relationships 
never mind sexual orientation for the individual, but same-sex relationships are covered by Section 15. Okay. What happened is that one of the five judges also said that even though it's discriminatory, Parliament has the right to make that kind of discrimination, and that's what's called a, a Section 1 exclusion. So exactly how does a judge justify discrimination, you ask? Justice John Sapinka wrote that the court needed to give the government time to accommodate what he called, quote, new social relationships. I will pause here to point out that Egan and Nesbitt had been in a relationship for 47 years. But basically, the court was saying this. Yes, gay people are equal to straight people. And yes, gay relationships are equal to straight relationships. But we're not going to force the government to give you that equality just yet. Make no mistake about it, though, this was a massive victory. Because after Egan, there was no more question of if we had rights. There was only a question of when. Queer Decade 1995-2005 to was written and produced by me, Heather Kitching. Madeline Taylor engineered the interviews. Queer Decade uses music composed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Details are at http colon slash slash creativecommons.org slash licenses slash by slash 3.0. The compositions are called Shades of Spring, Walking Along, Spellbound, Acid Jazz, Chipper Doodle Volume 2, EDM Detection Mode, Ether Disco, Pyro Flow, Danger Storm, Lightness Dawn, Babylon, Son of a Rocket, String Disco, Your Call, and Basement Floor. Queer Decade is a production of CITR Radio and the UBC Centennial Initiatives Fund. Canada, oh Canada. Oh Canada, indeed. I worked in Canada. I lived in Canada for a while. Did you? Why didn't you stay? In Toronto, I I worked at Canada's Wonderland. Oh my gosh. My opening act there was Penn and Teller. I don't know what happened to them, but they were pretty awful magicians. I'm sure they had great promise, I'll have to look them up someday. Now, this was really an interesting piece, though, because I don't remember reading any of this in the American newspapers at the time. We barely know our own history. Well, that's very true. We don't know much of our own history. Speaking of history, (laughs) that's not a segue at all, because we're going to talk now about Colby Keller, who is a porn star and model. He's been Vivian Westwood, the designer in New York, calls him her muse. And he is an artist in his own right, and I cannot wait to hear this piece, so let's And I got to say, he smells really good. That's good to know, Steve. Let's listen. Far more than the sum of his attractive parts, Colby Keller is a veteran porn star, artist, fashion model, self-described sex nerd, and a talented writer with a regularly updated blog called Big Shoe Diaries. He wears a size 15 for the record. Yeah, I know. Big feet, big heart. My name is Colby Keller, and I am a porn performer. I'm also an artist, and I'm a blogger. And the name, is that your stage name or your real name? It is my stage name. I was actually given Colby by Sean Cody, which is the first company I worked for. And I did a few videos for Joe Gage for Titan, I think. And because I'm so shy and introverted, he actually named me after Helen Keller. 
<laughs> because I'm or a deaf, blind bl- woman, blind, deaf, and dumb. I don't know. Hopefully, you know, it wasn't anything like that. Tell and, me about your childhood and your parents, your family. I grew up in Texas, in a suburb outside of Houston. I have two older brothers and an older sister. I was the baby and I was spoiled. When childhood. did you know you were gay? I remember kind of playing it off when I was younger. Of being like, yeah, like, I sure like looking at pictures of naked dudes, but maybe I just want to look like them. That's what it's about. I just want to look like that, you know, and touch myself. Tomorrow I'm going to do the hard work of trying to sexualize girls. But right now I'm just going to, like, look at these dudes. I, like, collected a lot of porn. I used to actually go to the – it was like a book stop. It was like a chain bookstore in Texas. And they had gay porn there, like gay porn magazines. And I remember being, like, 14 years old walking into these bookstores and very brazenly going up to the counter and putting the porn magazines down. And I think there was a gay guy actually that worked there and he would let me buy them. (laughs) And one time I go up there and it's this old curmudgeonly woman and she just looks mean. And I'm like, yeah, I've got them here, right? Like I have the magazines in my hand. I have to try this. And I put them on the counter and she's like, you can't buy these. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, but I want to buy them. And she's like, you can't buy them. (laughs) But it was that porn collection that my mother actually found. I kept it under the sink. And they had a confrontation with me over it. And I went into my room and I closed the door. And they were talking to me through the door. And my mother was angry, really, really angry. And at one point she even said that not only did she want to kill herself, you know, to make me feel guilty, of course, But she was going to buy a gun and she really had this desire to just like blow my brains out all over the sofa and then kill herself. And I kept thinking like, wow, that Christianity, you've really learned a lot. Why have we been going to church? (laughs) If that's the lesson you're taking away, I think you maybe were paying attention. My father, of course, who never went to church, was very loving and compassionate. And they got into a fight, actually. And he was telling her, if you ever touch a hair on his head... Not only am I going to divorce you, you're going to jail. And it was a very intense situation. Sadly, that next weekend after this whole thing happened, my father went out of town. And I remember getting in the car to go to church with my mother on Sunday. We pulled out of the driveway and she kicked me out of the car. And we might have had an argument about whether I want to go to therapy or something for this. And I told her no. And so... I remember, (laughs) again, an embarrassing, not very flattering story that I find funny, but most people will probably find very sad. I actually went, ran into the house and I ran upstairs in my bathroom and I tried to drink a bottle of shampoo to kill myself, (laughs) which is FYI to everyone out there, not the best way to kill yourself. My mother came back in and saw that I had tried to drink the bottle of shampoo. And and then, of course, like how horrible am I that not only am I gay, but how dare you try to kill one of God's creatures, which I have apparently still am. And I just thought, you really messed up, lady. <laughs> like, Not only are you, you have a problem with me being gay, but like, I can't even kill myself. Like, really? <laughs> But it was interesting because she, you know, eventually like I got a boyfriend and, you know, he would spend the night in my bedroom in our, in our house. And we actually would share, she, she decided that she was going to move upstairs while he was sleeping over. And I never understood what that was about because Like, I mean, man, she would hear us having sex, I'm sure. Yeah, and we still have a strange kind of relationship. I find her attachment to a particular type of evangelical Christianity to be very sad because I think my mother is actually a very smart woman. 
my grandfather was actually a very abusive man physically and emotionally to her when she was a child. So I'm very compassionate to my mother because I know that she has that history. And I feel as if she kind of replaced an abusive father with an abusive God. How did you get into the porn business? Poverty. (laughs) I think I had just graduated college with an anthropology degree. Originally, I was in an art program and my parents offered to pay for my undergraduate degree if I went to a cheap state school in Texas. So I did that. I actually did community college the first two years to save them money and then went to the University of Houston. I didn't like their studio art program there. And I was taking classes at another school in Texas while I was going to college. And I graduated and I could not find a job to save my life. McDonald's wouldn't hire me. And I didn't know what to do. And I was always curious about porn. I went to my favorite porn site, and I was tooling around down there, and I saw, if you want to apply, push that button. And I went through the steps, and I submitted some pictures. And I was certain that they would come back at me, and they would say no. Honestly, I was probably doing it for the wrong reasons. I really wanted to be rejected. I was kind of depressed about not having a job and didn't know what to do with myself. And I'm like, this will validate these negative perceptions I have about myself. And they didn't do that. They wanted to fly me out to San Diego. And I'm like, oh, man, now what do I do? Like, do I have to do it? Should I do it? Curiosity got the best of me, and I decided this has happened. They said they want to see me, so let's go to San Diego. And, you know, I wanted to really explore what would happen if I said yes and, and decided to do it. So I did. And I was convinced that, you know, I'm going to get off the plane. They're going to take one look at me and be like, you know, you owe us for the flight. And they didn't do that. Every step of the way, I kept thinking that that was going to happen and it didn't. So yeah, that's how I got started. And it it took me actually a long time before I could conceive of the porn performer as a part of myself, if that makes sense. It took a really long time. I would see pictures of myself and I would be like, whoa, who's that dude? <laughs> like, well, that guy looks like me. <laughs> like, I just did not think of myself as that person at all. Even the type of person, I'm like, oh, not me. I'm not the type of person that would do that. <laughs> you know? But I am, obviously. So it took a long time to merge those two views of myself that I could be, that it was actually a healthy thing to like embrace sex and what it is that porn does and to take on that role and to kind of really think through what's possible with that role. But it's been a long process. (laughs) What sort of art do you do? Are you a painter, a sculptor, performance art? I would say all of the above. I don't want to limit my practice to any one particular medium. To be honest, I've started to see Colby Keller as a medium. So not only do I want to make art as Colby Keller, but I, I think of Colby Keller as a medium that other people can also using to that effect. And that really does change what's possible and how I conceive of an art practice. But I don't think it limits me to drawing or painting. I think all of those things are techniques and tools. Art is a funny thing. I can drink out of this cup of water here, and it's just a cup of water. I can, as the artist, say this cup of water is a piece of art. Well, thank God, because we have fun drive coming up, and I need premiums. (laughs) Well, right, like you can do, like that's what Duchamp says. The urinal is a piece of art. Well, that is true only because the audience accepts it and endorses that idea. We all go into the museum, and we continually say that urinal is art. It's kind of like a contract that's continually renewed. But that contract depends on an audience 
It depends on the artist. It depends on that kind of social relationship. That art is actually something that's social. As much as we might want to say, like, every drawing is a piece of art, it's only a piece of art if we all say that it is. Earlier this year, you finished a two-year project called COVID Does America. Tell me about it. I got forced out of my apartment in Baltimore that I had lived in for nine years. I had a lot of stuff. And I realized that there was no way to really effectively carry those things with me. I realized what I really wanted to do is try to think through a way to make it an art piece, to make it a positive kind of generative experience for myself. So I got rid of everything that I owned. I gave everything away for free, including everything. Like there was a moment at the end of this project where I did not have clothes on my body. I did not own a single thing for an entire day. That project was called Everything But Lenin because there was a plaque of Lenin that I wanted to keep. And I also actually um, transferred everything on a hard drive that I had to a new hard drive that I named Lenin. That was kind of a solution to a problem maybe. And then I realized I had another problem, which is what do I do after that moment? Colby Does America came about because I wanted to kind of go back to what it is that makes me Colby Keller, which is having sex on film, and maybe go around the country and travel and try to make my own porn with people. And originally the, the idea was to get a very simple van and put a bed in the back that I could sleep in and maybe some cameras and just float around the country and make very simple amateur porn videos. And then through that process, conceive of ways of envisioning the process itself as a work of art. Amateur sex with Colby Keller has got to be daunting because you're a sexpert. A sexpert. Yeah, I got invited to do these series of videos giving sex advice to people. And I realized it's really kind of absurd because do I know anything about sex? All I do is have sex on camera. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but there, I think, is a lot of fun space to play with that concept. There's a lot of responsibility in telling people what to do and not to do. What is the secret to great sex? Empathy. You should be aware of your partner and what they need and what they want. And if they're empathetic to your needs and wants, you'll have really good sex. But, you know, that can be a very difficult thing and it can be difficult to access. Personally, in my own sex life, there are a lot of hangups I've had. Things I wouldn't let myself do just because I, maybe I thought it would say something negative about me or, you know, I was just concerned about. It's weird because you're like, oh, I'm having sex with this person. Like, they're obviously into that thing, but, like, I shouldn't feel insecure or doubtful about that thing. But it happens because we're raised in I mean, it's a pretty conservative culture and those things can inhibit. That conservative culture is pervasive. In the LGBT community, radical fairies have given way to marriage, military service, and conformity. Ooh, conformity. <laughs> I agree. I feel like the gay rights movement... I mean, it's hard because we, we do need to acknowledge the fact that the 80s were devastating to, to gay and lesbian, and particularly gay men countless people died and that did affect our relationship to sexuality in some ways that are positive and in some ways that are negative instead of kind of embracing what was radical about gay sexuality or queer sexuality some people took a tactic that was more politically salient for a lot of reasons which pushed a kind of conformist agenda which includes things like gay marriage 
And look, I'm not opposed to marriage. I understand why that is meaningful and beautiful to a lot of people, and, and I endorse that. But it's an institution that ultimately is based on property relationships. Do you really want your love to be <laughs> like stamped and approved because of <laughs> your relationship to property? It does something to cheapen the kind of love that we can have for other people. And, you know, I was in a relationship where I had two boyfriends, and I loved both of them. It really disgusted me, this idea that I would have to pick one of them to marry. And there are a lot of gay relationships that are like that. And I think those are the kind of radical relationships we should be advocating for instead of adopting an attitude that can be dismissive of the full potentiality that our sexualities kind of offer us. It's hard because we play this PC game. I'm not allowed to say that I think that this political thing you support is not good. But, you know, I'm also a crazy communist. Like, I have different views of the world than most people do. What I decided at a certain point is to just be who I am. And this is who I am. This has been a conversation with Colby Keller. Find more information on his blog, Big Shoe Diaries, at bigshoediaries.blogspot.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Sigh. I just don't think I could love Colby Keller anymore after that. There was a lot more to the interview I was able to use. Yeah. He really is a, kind of a renaissance guy. I was stunned because I've interviewed porn guys before mm. that you don't know what you're going to get. And I know. That was a really fun interview. very smart and artistic. I know. And if you want to see what he does, there is actually a website, ColbyDoesAmerica.com. So check it out. And for you youngsters out there, we need to explain. Steve was being facetious when we talked about Phyllis Schlafly because what she was was – Back in the olden days, there was the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, that said you couldn't discriminate on the basis of sex. That's all it said. And this woman made it her job to make sure that it didn't get ratified. And she did not believe in feminism, and she was just a conservative nightmare. And she lived to the age of 92. And she lived to the age of 92 and has a gay son. So The good die young. <laughs> so there's that. Anyway. Well, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, director, Michelle Marie Gilkerson, board operator, Federico Garcia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imuradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. And while you're there, give us a like, please. Also, thanks to everyone who supported this station during the recent KPFK Fun Drive. We'll close with the touching tale of love on the high seas. The Cosmo Jarvis classic, Gay Pirates. Good night. Good night. This water is too salty for me to even drink. I'd rather walk the dreaded plank than stay another week. But it's you, my love You're my land hoy. And I'm sick of being beaten And whipped and lashed to death I want one night with no gang rape But I won't hold my breath But it's you, my love
sleep on the floor I'd be under the sea But you hold me above And they put glass in my sandals So my feet would bleed all day And they forced me to wear them Or they said they'd make you pay I'd be under the sea Is mine. I'll see you on the bed of this blue ocean, babe, sometime But I'm yours, you know And I'll love you still in hell